Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Health Nuts podcast with certified holistic nutrition consultants, Mary Vance and Caitlin Weeks. Our goal is to dispel mainstream nutrition myths and bring you the best in holistic health and real food education. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Mary. How are you today? I'm good. Um, how are you? Great. Enjoying my holiday weekend and trying to get back into work mode. Yeah, same here. Uh, so today we are welcoming back functional medicine practitioner, Dr. Dan Kalish, who's the author of the Kalish Method book and also your guide to healthy hormones. And he, speaking of hormones, Joan joined us earlier this year on a podcast where we talked about female hormones, which ended up being, I think, one of our top rated podcasts. Absolutely. So today we're going to talk about brain chemistry and how it's implicated in depression, ADD, ADHD, uh, even obesity, addiction, and Parkinson's, and how it's possible to reverse these conditions naturally. And we've had a lot of reader questions and interest, so we're excited to have you back. Hi, Dan. Hey, good to have, good to be back. Thank you. So we'll get started in just a minute, but Caitlin, why don't you read our disclaimer and we'll make a few announcements and then get going. The only purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform. It is no substitute for professional medical care by a doctor. This podcast is provided with the understanding that it does not constitute medical advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your needs with a licensed healthcare provider. Caitlin Weeks and Mary Vance assume no liability for your activities in connection with this podcast. Excellent. So you can find Caitlin on Facebook at Grassfed Girl, and I'm Mary Vance Nutrition, and she's grassfedgirl.com, and I'm maryvancenc.com. So speaking of your site, what's new on your blog? Well, I've been blogging up a storm lately, all kinds of, I think I had like four or five new gelatin recipes lately, and I have been sharing a lot of the recipes from my book, a lot of the Mediterranean paleo recipes, so that's been a big hit, and I have all kinds of stuff every day now. I've been blogging almost every day, so stay tuned. <laughs> well, gelatin is always a big topic, since everybody's kind of gelatin crazy right now. Um, I have a D DIY homemade chocolate bar using therapeutic ingredients. And also, I wrote a post on how to get rid of yeast overgrowth, candida, uh, which all of us have dealt with in our practices. Um, and there is also a review of your book coming soon on my site, because I uh, have now tested more of the recipes. So I'm excited to put that up. Oh, wow. That sounds good. And so... Let's go ahead and get started because I have a lot of questions to cover and I've read both of Dan's books and they're great reads and also he, he makes easy to or complicated to understand topics really easy and user friendly which is good. And you know we're kind of learning a lot about brain chemistry and how addressing neurotransmitter levels can heal you know the conditions I mentioned earlier like addiction, depression, obesity and Parkinson's. And previously, it was thought, you know, in, in most of these conditions that there wasn't any real cure and that you have to be on meds for the rest of your life or just address the condition and live with it. But now we know it's kind of possible to heal the brain, which is pretty exciting stuff. So 
To get started, Dan, please tell our listeners a little bit about kind of what brain chemistry balance means and, and what neurotransmitters are. Okay, so that's, it's all like backwards from what you think, right? So in general, people think that low neurotransmitter levels would cause neurotransmitter-related problems. So the, how that would play out would be, let's say your serotonin levels are low and so you're depressed. So then the solution to that would be to take an antidepressant medication that would raise your serotonin levels. And that kind of makes sense on the surface of it, but what they've learned in the last maybe 10, 10 years or so of researching this is that it, it tends to be brain cells not firing properly that is the bigger problem than low serotonin or low dopamine levels. So it's just kind of a reframing of the issue, and it actually makes a big difference when you start to think about the solutions for it. So um, in other words, rather than having low serotonin levels leading to serotonin-related problems, you could have normal serotonin levels, but the serotonin-related neurons not firing properly would cause the same kind of reaction. So that's a pretty big distinction. It really helps us nutritionally because then we start to look at, well, what would damage brain cells and make them not fire well, right? And then there's a pretty simple understanding of that, which is anything that's known as a neurotoxin ah. could, potentially, could potentially damage a brain cell and would lead to perhaps a worldwide epidemic of increasing rates of depression that we're experiencing right now. Or a you know, California-wide epidemic of massive increases in autism rates that we've never seen before. All the things that you associate with brain-related disorders um, kind of makes sense. And this model, I mean, you start to think, you just sit down and think about it for five minutes, it makes sense. Because did the human being's levels of serotonin plummet in the last 30 years, you know, as much as the toxins have increased? You know, probably not. It's probably more what we would call damage to the system that's really triggering a lot of these issues. So that's actually pretty cool. So you're saying that it's not necessarily a serotonin deficiency, but actually that there's neuron bundle damage and just kind of due to what else besides toxicity or environmental causes would lead to that. Yeah, so the other main way you can damage something other than, you know, chemically damaging it would be just through physical trauma. And so you hear a lot about this now in, in reference to athletes, uh, professional boxers, professional hockey players. Of course, the probably leading the charge on this now is the National Football League and all the things that happen to human beings when their brains are, you know, ex you know, exposed to recurrent concussions or recurrent physical trauma. Um, the other group that you see this with in a way that's hard to ignore are the estimated 400,000 veterans that are coming back from the current wars in the Middle East that we're involved with who have experienced head trauma and now are going through all the things that you would imagine would happen if you you know, were basically driving along in a Humvee, your vehicle's blown up into the air, five, ten feet from a IED and you kind of scramble out of it and we have these vehicles armored so well now and the men and women that are driving in these vehicles have enough body armor to survive these kind of injuries whereas in previous wars they'd probably be dead but what they're walking away with after they come back from the war zone is some pretty serious head trauma. So, you know, I've been to the VA hospitals here in Northern California and seen young men and women like this, 22, 23-year-olds who have symptoms like an uh, 87-year-old with Parkinson's disease, right, because they've sustained some pretty serious physical damage to the brain. So physical trauma and chemical trauma, those are the two kind of 
leading ways that brains can become damaged. And then there are some people, and many of us, who just have um, you know, a deficiency of brain chemicals just because of the things that you'd expect, like a poor diet, not getting enough dietary protein, not digesting your food, and that kind of thing. And would that be a genetic component, too? Say if depression runs in a family, there's sort of an inborn deficiency that might occur? Yeah, so that would be the third major category. So in the, in the book, I talk about this, too. So the three categories would be, number one, a genetic, meaning that you're you know, born with a brain that's not functioning as well as it should. Uh, number two would be the damage types that we talked about. That would be damage from toxins, damage from physical trauma. And then the third type, and this is the easiest type to fix, would be a deficiency type where you just don't have enough amino acids in your system. If that's the case, you're going to feel tremendously better when you start to eat more healthily, right? Especially if people adopt like a paleo, low-grain kind of diet and all of a sudden get enough amino acids in their food the deficiency types people can restore, you know, without needing to see a doctor or do a lot of fancy lab work. What's the percentage when you see, like, what are the, how often is it the deficiency? Is that the the, the most common or? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I would say, I don't know the percentages, but I think, you know, just for listeners, you could probably figure this, some of this out on your own. So number one is if you just start to eat really well, cut out grains and get plenty of dietary protein and you feel your depression goes away or your anxiety goes away, you're probably a deficiency type, right? If you look at your family tree and you have suicide in the family, you have mental health problems, you have bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, depression, mild or moderate, if you have um, alcoholism, if you have you know, anxiety disorders you know, that run either on one or both sides of the family, then you probably have a genetic component. What if you have and all then, that? <laughs> I'm, just I'm pretty screwed then. <laughs> Welcome to America. <laughs> and by the way, if this wasn't depressing enough, we all have chemical toxicity, right? I mean, according to the CDC, which is like the most conservative group on the planet, Every American has somewhere between 400 and 700 neurotoxins in their body like right now, today. So the chemical damage part is happening across the board. Every man, woman, and child in the United States has that problem, guaranteed. Wow. So that's why it's kind of hitting epidemic proportions now. I know. So, when, you, yeah, when you think about it, it all starts to make sense, right? I mean, it's not a random event that we're having all these brain-related problems. So, you know, I mentioned a few conditions earlier, but tell us, you know, what are some of the conditions that this would lead to? Well, let's think about it throughout the human lifespan, right? So when, well, the, and, and let's kind of break it out maybe into the more severe cases so it's a little more obvious, right? So in the more severe cases, in childhood, um, the most extreme version of this would be some kind of autism spectrum disorder, right? A milder version of it would be ADD or ADHD. And again, the same basic principles apply, right? You might just get all the additives out of the kid's diet, put them on a whole foods diet with really healthy vegetables and protein, and miraculously, they're exercising all of a sudden, and now their ADD, ADHD goes away just because they were really suffering from the deficiency type, right? So we're not saying that all kids have to be treated. We're just saying that you know a lot of this could come about uh, you know, from a natural treatment solution. Then as you get into you know, younger adults, let's say teenagers and younger adults, ages 15 to 25, in, in uh, mostly girls and young women, we see eating disorders starting. 
that are related to brain-related problems. People start to compulsively overeat. They can't stop it. And in order to not get fat, they start to diet, you know, so then they're compulsively overeating and then dieting. So you see that in the teenage girls, maybe into the early 20s range. Sometimes that continues on throughout their whole life, obviously. Sometimes it stops. Um, and also in that, like, 15 to 25-year-old range, you see a lot of attention problems. So the kids are taking Adderall so they can study better, um, they may be anxious, they may de be depressed, you know, some range may be going back and forth between those two. Um, of course, the ADD medications make this all worse, right, because they're amphetamines and they speed people up and, and, and they calm people down in these kind of complex ways, but eventually they just start to get people to swing up and down more and more. So um, most of the research on, on those kind of drugs shows that it predisposes you to develop bipolar disorder as a young adult if you take those in childhood. And then you get into, like, you know, 30s and 40s age range. Usually we see more things like um, anxiety and depression type stuff. And then as adults get older, you know, in their 60s and 70s, you'll see Parkinson's disease, um, you'll see Alzheimer's and, and problems that are more severe. Obviously those people are older. They've had these toxins in their body for longer, and there's more time for the brain to have sustained damage. So I'm curious too, you know, you mentioned if – say you had enough serotonin but you just had neuron bundle damage and you're put on some of these medications, is that when people start having these kind of paradoxical reactions like suicidal tendencies or what's the, the or implication of putting people on antidepressant drugs? Well, you know, the, there's been a lot of research on this, you know, and there's good books about it as well. Um, the Anatomy of an Epidemic is a really good one, but, you know, the, by this guy named Whitaker. But, you know, the... Um, the research is pretty clear, right? So what it shows is that if you have moderate to severe depression, short-term use of antidepressant drugs is very effective. So moderate to severe depression is pretty bad, right? That might mean you're in a mental hospital locked up. That might mean that you're not able to get you know, dress yourself any longer. You don't go outside anymore. You're not cooking we're not talking about people who are bummed out because their car mileage isn't as great as it should be, right? This is like major to severe depression is a mental health disorder, and that person needs you know, medical intervention and medical help. So the drugs are designed for that patient population. They work pretty well for that group. Um, once you get into mild, mild depression or the sort of lower-level problems, then the medications just cause a lot of side effects and don't really offer – much in the way of benefit, you know, somewhere between 8 and 12% of people who take the drugs who have mild to mo mild depression, you know, symptoms, which is more what we think of as depression, you know, um, common usage. Those, about, about 8 to 12% of those people get a benefit, which means about 88 to 92% of them um, actually get no benefit at all, but inherit all the risks and all the side effects of the medications, which are uh, pretty severe. I've Several women in my practice right now lost the ability to orgasm after taking an antidepressant drug, and even though they stopped the drug, they're still not able to orgasm. That's not a great thing for a woman in her 20s or 30s that wants to have babies and have a family, you know, and have a fun sex life. Um, see a lot of. Oh, just last week I had another patient who she's just on Prozac for like a week, and it just put her into this total tailspin of anxiety and horrible reactions and you know a lot of times when people stop the medications they can't pull out of the negative side effects because these drugs are pretty powerful and the way that they change the brain chemistry um in people who don't really need them can be quite damaging it's yeah it's, my uh, mom has been on uh antidepressants for a long time and you she can't 
she can't go. She, like, she can try to go off of them for a while, but then it's like if she hits, like, a stressful period, it's she always wants to go back. And... Yeah, so the, 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 the downside, one of the, one of the many downsides to these medications is that when they're used in people who don't really need them, is that they cause depletion of the very chemicals that they're trying to improve, right? So that becomes a pretty major issue, too, in that it makes it hard for people to get off the drugs because they've exhausted or burned out or depleted the drugs themselves, burn out or deplete serotonin. Um, so you create a dependency problem with the medications that's pretty significant. And then they prescribe other antidepressants to take in addition to the ones that you're on when those no longer work. Yeah, it's kind of a vicious circle, you know, and honestly, I don't think any doctor that's prescribing the stuff that's tracking it carefully is very happy with the results because people just don't really get better in the long term. Um, and when you're using a drug that depletes the chemical that you're trying to treat, you know, you're just running up against a roadblock there that's going to ha- you know, impact you sooner or later. And you get a, a lot of problems with people choosing alcohol to feel better too which further further exacerbates the problems i think that's part of the issue is if your brain isn't working then you seek substances outside yourself to make yourself feel better and that's kind of the root of uh compulsive overeating or drinking or drugs right yeah most addictive behaviors are um I can't remember what I was going to ask next, but in terms of testing, how do you measure? I mean, how is it possible to measure neurotransmitter levels without going into your brain and looking? Yeah, so there's you know there's a couple of different techniques that are pretty effective. Um, you know, one thing you could do that makes sense right off the bat is just to make sure that you measure the detox pathways so that you can protect the brain adequately and measure the antioxidants so you can protect the brain properly. So the best thing, right, is to prevent the brain damage in the first place. So that's a matter of checking liver detox pathways with these different labs I do. They're called organic acid profiles. And then um, measuring for antioxidant levels and the various B vitamins that help with detox. You can do all that from a simple urine test. So then you know how much antioxidant protection the person needs, how much support they need of their sulfur pathways, this whole methylation sulfur pathway thing is really important for protecting the brain. There's another chemical called glutathione that's really important for protecting the brain. And, of course, the B vitamins. So if those nutrients are taken in, in the right amount based on the lab work, then right off the bat you've got the detox pathways working. They're flushing out the neurotoxins so they don't damage brain cells. And you can start to protect the brain cells from toxins that may be in your system. Okay, So that's kind of the first line of defense. If you want to do that, and you don't want to buy a bunch of supplements or pay for a really expensive doctor like me, then you can do it the old-fashioned way, which is called vegetables. <laughs> yeah. so the design team, whoever you think the design team is for this planet, thought all this through a long time ago, and you can get sulfur-containing nutrients from onions and garlic and cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cabbage and cauliflower and you can get the minerals that you need and the antioxidants you need from green leafy vegetables right from carrots from all the basic stuff that we should be eating every day anyway so most people i don't think can get enough from their diet but if you're not doing it with your diet then it's kind of stupid to take a bunch of pills what's the point taking liver detox pills and antioxidants and b vitamins as you're 
chugging down your Big Mac with your Coke. It just doesn't make whole sense. <laughs> so and if that's a way to do it. That can make a huge difference. And then if that's not enough, you can escalate and do some lab work. Um, and then also you can measure the urinary byproducts of serotonin and dopamine with the, the same organic acids profile. So you can see basically if you're spilling out or losing these chemicals and if you need to start to replace them. And then there's some more complex labs that measure the actual levels of serotonin and dopamine in the urine. And from that, you can extrapolate what's going on in the brain. But that one, those, those are really difficult to do and hard to interpret. But um, if you have a, a significant enough problem, you kind of work your way up to more and more you know, dramatic treatments in terms of all this nutritional stuff. Um, and then ultimately, there are also some basic programs you can do just to put back in missing serotonin and dopamine and sulfur compounds you know, that you don't need lab work for. Um, you can take combinations of 5-HTP and tyrosine and some kind of sulfur compound like cysteine just to bring generally your serotonin and dopamine levels back up to normal without any lab work. And um, that's you know safe to do as long as you tolerate the supplements well. So that's kind of what the protocols involve. Once you get someone's test results back, then you just design using amino acids or, or tell everybody kind of how the, the healing protocol would work. Yeah, so we focus on getting rid of the toxins, right, through diet and lifestyle changes so you're not getting more exposure. Uh, and then once all that's kind of ra- – and that's complicated, right? That's, you know, women that might be changing the kind of makeup that you use or beauty, other beauty care products or, you know, it might be getting your dental fillings replaced because you have six mercury fillings that need to get out. So that can be complicated and time-consuming to get all the toxins out of the system. And then um, – we amino acids, most especially 5-HTP and tyrosine and cysteine, to start to um, balance out the serotonin and dopamine levels in the brain. Either you know some generic protocols you can do without lab work, or if you need to make it more complicated, um, you can start to urine test and track the effect of the amino acids in the urine and raise the dosages up to a level that that people need. So you were mentioned heavy metals how does that affect i mean i think we know mercury can kind of chomp brain cells but is that part of the protocol is heavy metal testing too yeah because the um the fastest way to destroy a brain cell is with a heavy metal like mercury or lead fastest way and that's kind of horrifying since we have mercury fillings next to our brain (laughs) That idea, whoever really thought that first, that was like, a lot of bad ideas you can think of in the world. That was a really bad idea. Like, there's like little bad ideas, like the clapper you see on TV clap, clap, the lights go on and off. You're just inside the human body in a surface like the teeth that are abraded because you're chewing all the time and allowing those vapors to just go directly to your brain. That was like. Uh, a 10 on the extra stupid scale of human activity. And the fact that we still do it just shows how really stupid people are. Um, I've gotten over the fact of shock behind all that. It's just like, I don't know, we, we fight wars. We do a lot of stupid stuff, you know, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, I guess that's just the human condition. But um, that's an extra, extra bad one. So 
Um, there are other sources of toxins. Some of these things you can avoid. Some you can't, like flame retardants that they sprayed on your couch before they shipped it, which is a requirement in the state of California. Um, you know, Johnson's baby shampoo that I know my mom rubbed into my head when I was a little baby. Turns out that's kind of a toxin vehicle as well. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that's probably too late for. But the things that you can do something about, um, you know, you just want to jump on the organic bandwagon and grab on as tight as you can and make sure your cleaning products are good and your, you know, the stuff you're using to wash your clothes and your dishes is not too toxic. And again, for women, you know, lipstick, don't buy the kind that has lead in it. Not a good idea. Get the kind that's lead free. And, you know, focusing on what you can do to reduce your exposure is probably the most important thing. So, um, we have some reader questions too, but I'm still curious about this. You know, you mentioned uh, diet, and obviously that's a huge part of this, but what would you specifically consider a brain-healthy diet? I mean, we've all heard about omega-3 fatty acids, and I think kind of what we're learning is really supporting detox, but what do you specifically recommend to keep a healthy brain? Yeah, so I guess in the order of importance would be the essential fatty acids, right, because that's the makes up the fatty layer around the brain cells that protects them in the first place. And that's, you know, fish oils, probably not too much fish, because the fish has mercury, but fish oils that are got the mercury taken out of them, and other kinds of essential fatty uh, acids that you can get from, uh, you know, nuts and seeds, etc. And then probably number two would be a healthy protein. If you're a vegetarian, hey, you, more power to you, you can do it. Um, it's easier for most people to do it with, you know, free-range meats and whatnot. Um, but the amino acids in the protein are going to be what you make these brain chemicals out of, so that's pretty important. And then um, super-duper important is the toxins, and that's mostly driven by fruits and vegetables, you know, primarily vegetables. Um, and then I don't think I said anything about sugar, alcohol, grain, dairy, or soy yet. Uh, we don't eat those. Nobody eats those that listens, so don't worry. <laughs> That's, that's not true. That's not true. Tell us more. Horrify everyone with what happens when you eat junk food. Yeah. So junk food is good for my business, you know, because that drives patients in the door because gluten, dairy, soy, alcohol, grains inflame your brain. So, you know, that's why I have a business because people eat really crappy food and they inflame their brains and then that kind of nukes their brain cells and then they end up not feeling that great. So, I don't know. It's a personal decision. You know, you don't have to be perfect about it, but you should not, on a daily basis, you should avoid inflaming your brain with gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, alcohol, etc. I just wouldn't do it every day. If once in a while you want to do it, that's okay. Um, but the daily consumption of those things is going to inflame your system and eventually inflame your brain and cause brain cell damage. Um, speaking of inflammation and you know we hear a lot about inflammation in in the body and in the brain but what are the long-term effects like for you know we see more and more people getting alzheimer's and dementia what is what happens long term when we have this inflammation in the brain yeah i mean it starts to calcify and the brain cells themselves can't fire properly so it ends up with a pretty yucky, damaged brain. That really, I mean, because once you get to the end of the spectrum where things are really quite damaged, it's really too late. There's not a whole lot you can do about it. 
But, um, you know, if you're proactive about it, if you're younger, if you're in your 20s or 30s or 40s, you could prevent a lot of these problems from happening just by keeping the inflammation levels in your body down. Um, through diet? Yeah, I mean, through diet and through not hitting your head against things. <laughs> um, my little brother played uh, football and he took some acne medication and he had and we have a lot of depression in our family it's like a perfect storm of um of uh you know inflammation in the brain right yeah i mean it's a little unrealistic i'm not against football in general and i think it's actually kind of an interesting game to watch but um I certainly wouldn't want anyone I care about to engage in a in a sport in which their head is used as a vehicle for pummeling other hard up. A battering ram. Yeah, just not a good strategy. Like, um, and I think that that's you know they're just starting to realize this as the aging of the NFL players is starting to you know, and I think it's not only that these guys are getting older, but they're becoming more vocal about it. People are starting to talk about um, more openly talk about. The depression and anxiety and memory problems that they're suffering after, yeah, you know, it's probably more of a stigma. It used to be like men don't cry or something like that. <laughs> a lot of famous guys, and the, there was one that happened recently. It was a famous hockey player that killed himself. You know, very well loved, and the whole profession of hockey kind of took that one hard because he was a good guy. And to realize that, you know, you could have that much head trauma that you would no longer want to be alive. I mean, that's pretty significant for. For all of us to step back and think about now, you know, for regular people that are not professional athletes, um, you're thinking more about head trauma, like um, car accidents. Your head hits the windshield. Uh, you know, some people do have multiple head trauma, even if they're not in a professional sport. You may have had five or six car accidents. I've seen that before. Or you might have one really good fall off a horse. You know, or um, getting kicked in the head by a horse, like me growing up. <laughs> Growing up raising and training show horses, not only did I get thrown off a lot, I got kicked squarely in the head. <laughs> I, I knew something was up with you. <laughs> Most people say that, in fact. <laughs> the, but, uh, yeah, I had a I, really bad sledding accident when I was like 10, like into a tree. <laughs> God, that's all awful. But the solution to that is, this is what I've done for my son, is you force your child to wear a helmet 24 hours a day, even when they're sleeping. <laughs> I know. You do see more kids with that. wasn't really a thing when we were growing up. And now it seems like, really, even if you're skateboarding or doing anything, snowboarding. kids You see that now. You didn't used to see people snowboarding with helmets. Yeah, no, that, that's a thing, which I'm glad to see. But is that part of your practice, too? Can you actually you know, heal these brain injuries by reversing neuron bundle damage? Because we always hear, you know, once things are dying in your brain, they're dead. But So you're saying this is reversible. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, but there's you know, the whole issue of now they call brain plasticity, where if you look at the generation of textbooks that I was, you know, force-fed in school, those days they said that, you you know, basically you're born with a certain number of brain cells and hold on to them as best you can because you're never going to get any more. But now they know really clearly in years. Your brain grows just like a muscle grows. It also atrophies like a muscle atrophies. So if you don't work out in the gym, you get all saggy and you don't look that good. If you don't use your brain, then the brain cells, um, you know, don't grow. So, you know, being mentally active and making sure you're using your brain. And if you do have damage from chemicals, from heavy metals, 
from physical trauma. If you do have any sort of damage from um, neurotoxins or from methylation problems or sulfur-containing problems or whatever it is, um, you can reverse it, you know, and there's some evidence now that even with these supplement programs, there's a certain percentage of people who can restore their functioning uh, brain with supplements and then, in fact, get off of all the supplements and not need to take them long-term, which is really, really encouraging. Yeah, that was my next question is, you know, once, so it is possible once you kind of flooded the brain with healing amino acids, then you can eventually cut down on them and then kind of be healed? Yeah, I mean, I I think there's, there's, there's several reasons why that could occur, right? Number one would be, there's three different problems here. There's deficiency, there's damage, and there's genetic types, right? So if you're born with a brain problem, then it doesn't matter how much stuff you take or how long you take, it's just going to be there. But to the extent that you could have damage or you could have a deficiency, you can restore the firing of neurons. You can get neurons to grow and make new connections. So a lot of people, I would say the majority of people that I work with doing brain programs, probably 80, 90% of them get off of all their supplements within a year or two and maintain most, if not all, the benefits that they experience. So that's the good news, assuming that you're not creating more damage, right? Because if you're taking brain supplements and then chugging a beer and eating pizza and sitting on the couch, then clearly your brain's going to be inflamed, right? You're going to kind of not be able to repair it. But if you're willing to go gluten, dairy, soy, alcohol-free, get all that stuff out and actually eat vegetables and fruit and and real food, then you can have the nutrients that you need to repair, you get the inflammation out, you take supplements for a little while, like a year or two, to get the brain to fire properly. Now, of course, there's what they call limitations of physical matter. Like, that's not going to work if you have Parkinson's or autism, right? These are uh, people who could resolve and heal their brain-related problems are going to be people who have a, a much milder version of it than someone who's that sick. And maybe playing Sudoku, too, to exercise your brain while you're doing all this. Sudoku could help. Um, I practice New York Times every day. I feel like that is uh, reading the New York Times and then reporting stories to someone. I feel like that's like my little memory (laughs) memory thing. Uh, Well, you just need to keep learning things and keep keep growing and, and trying new things, right? Yeah, and then at the same time, interestingly, nothing with your brain is really good for your brain too, right? Like meditating, learning how to focus and concentrate and let go of all the thoughts. It's sort of a balance between use it or lose it and also just wanting to turn it off once in a while, um, uh, which I think, in my personal opinion now, physically turning off your cell phone, not like turning the ringer off, but like turning the whole thing off and putting it away somewhere and just allowing yourself to be detached from electronic devices and um, get more into nature and, you know, a little more calm and peace. Yeah, but that's interesting because I actually read an article saying that, you know, now life online and iPads and iPhones is giving us popcorn brain where it's actually affecting our ability to focus on a task at one time. And I wonder how that even, you know, you kind of get like a charge when you are texting or whatever you're doing electronically. And I wonder how that really affects our brain chemistry too. You get a, every time that you get a little ding and you know that a text came in, mm-hmm. the reason you grab your phone is because you got a little squirt of dopamine released from that. 
Is that I mean, a bad thing? I hear two dings. If I hear ding, 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 wow, people just texted me. That's so cool. And I grab my phone, right? So that, yeah, it's a little dopamine squirt. Every time you get that, you know, what do you call it? Impulse. You get Every time you get that signal. So does that make you burn out faster then? Is that, that the bad part of that? Well, it depends on how much you rest and restore. I mean, so it's always a balance between the dinging and the, you know, no dinging, right? So, I mean, you have to once in a while be just sitting there staring at a stream or a lake in order to get your brain back out of that stimulation mode, right? I don't think getting stimulating your brain is a negative. It's just that if that's all you're ever doing. There's a study I read recently, too. This is a really funny study. I did it with my son because when my son – my son's idea of doing homework is sitting in front of a TV, which is on – Right, but he's not really watching while he has his computer open with his phone right next to him. <laughs> yeah, I've been guilty of that. So, and and of course he's texting and Snapchatting all at the same time. So, um, but the study was he didn't believe it. I think it was accurate that people who think that they're, they're really good at multitasking are actually less effective at each individual that task they're trying to do than people who just do things one at a time. But there's a delusion that occurs in multitaskers that they can actually effectively do these variety of activities at the same time. Actually, measure performance is not true. But part of the delusion of multitasking is that multitaskers feel that they're better at multitasking and that it actually improves their performance. But when they measure it, that's worse. I think, well, I think it makes you do like everything bad. <laughs> Well, yeah, and it also, I think, increases cortisol production because you have all these things going on and you're kind of stressed trying to stay on top of of everything. Um, but, yeah, the actually resting and recharging, I mean, we're, we're kind of programmed not to do that in our society because it means we're lazy, but we actually know how necessary it is to for balance. Performance for anything? Whether you're an, an athlete and you're worried about your body or you're uh, a mechanic and you're worried about your race car. I mean, obviously, taking time to rest and repair anything that's used is, is, is part of the cycle, right? It's the whole sharpening the knife thing, right? You're just cutting all the time and you're not sharpening it. It's just not going to work as well. And so uh, we just don't really take the time to shut down and sharpen the knife. I, I now I meditate two hours a day right now, which is wow. – Yeah, that's really impressive. I am impressed by that, and I'm going to say it out loud that I, it's the best thing I've ever done for myself, you know, and I, I meditated um, when I was 18 years old. I was living in a Zen monastery in Japan, and I have a long history of, I guess, 30 years of meditation under my belt, and I'll tell you, it's the single best thing that I do for myself for the world at large. Uh, those two hours are the most important part of my day, you know, um, you, and you get a, if you do it for 31 years, you get a lot out of it, too. It keeps getting better, so if you try to meditate and you're a little frustrated, through the first 10 minutes, you know, just give it some time because it's a skill that takes a little wire, a little for that. Absolutely. It is a great thing. Um, and I had a question there. You hear about this a lot in the media right now, the, the idea that carbohydrates are detrimental for the brain. What's your stance on that? I guess it's... Um, all relative. So let's think about it. So um, I guess it comes down to the type of carbohydrate. So clearly excessive consumption of grains is not good for anybody. Foot-long Subway sandwiches, you know, pizzas that are eaten without any other kind of healthy food. 
So excessive consumption of grain is clearly one of the major downfalls of our culture. But that doesn't matter that all grains are bad or you can't eat any grains any time, you know, so it can go to an extreme. But I think we've taken the consumption of grains to such an extreme that we're seeing, you know, all the negative consequences you could imagine. Plus, unfortunately, the quality of grains in this country is pretty poor in general, so, you know, that's a whole other issue, is that we're not eating very good quality food either. Um, and that combination, I think, is going to be pretty deadly. Now, if you're, for example, like a professional bicycle rider, and you're going to ride the Tour de France this summer several thousand miles through the French Alps and the Pyrenees, you know, it would be pretty hard to do that without carbohydrate, you know. You would probably die if you didn't have some carbs going. So, you know, you're not going to be able to eat enough vegetables to fuel yourself over the Pyrenees. So, I mean, there's some people who are at an extreme in their life, at, you know, and they need to consume some grains or some starchy carbs. Most of us are not riding bikes to 2,600 miles across the Alps. So most of us don't really need grains at all. Do I need grains just to get up and down from the chair in front of my computer and put on my headset? No, 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 probably not. If I have, I have not had any grains all day. I feel pretty good. You know, if I was on my bike for five or six hours this morning, I would need some kind of starchy carb probably just to function and get through the whole ride. Well, there's plenty of other options besides grains. I mean, people are just a little more creative. Like starchy like carbs, carbs. Yeah, yeah, or root vegetables. This is kind of that book, Grain Brain, talks about that. Have you read that? Oh, Perlmutter? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great book. And that's it. well worth reading if you haven't seen that one yet it's a good way to just scare people into getting off of grains well that's kind of what i was getting at is he he recommends a diet of like 50 carbs or less and it's pretty hardcore um which you know i was wondering your opinion well whenever there's no there's no one diet that works for everybody and the sicker you are the here's the the problem is that even for me right now at age 49 when basically probably the healthiest i've ever been my diet right now that's optimum is totally different than my diet that was optimum a year and a half ago it's different than the diet that worked for me 10 or 20 years ago within a single individual your stress levels the temperature of the area you're living in, the amount of sex you're having, the amount of um, stress you're under, all those things are going to change what your diet should be, even just for a single person. So figuring out the perfect diet that works for you right now, it might be completely different in 10 years. But there's some general trends that you could think about, right, that are really, I think, helpful. It took me at least 10 years to understand this. Number one, if you're sick, you're going to need more protein and more fat than you will when you're healthy because we use protein and fat for cellular repair and organ repair and tissue repair, right? So when I first started to go grain-free, I was eating a pound of bacon and a couple cubes of butter almost every day because I was so deficient in the healthy fats. I'm talking about raw, unprocessed butter, right, and really good quality bacon. Now, if I ate that much bacon or butter fat now, I would probably just throw up and get sick. I just don't need that much. So the diet that helps you get better when you're sick is not necessarily going to be the one that you want to stick with the rest of your life, right? That's yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Your body needs change all the time, too. And Perlmutter's book is oriented towards people who are eating foot-long Subway sandwiches, and they think it's healthy because they got the turkey kind, not the ham kind, right? <laughs> so... <laughs> 
you just eliminated footlong subway sandwiches, then you know you want to be pretty extreme about how you're adapting. Um, and the thing is that you don't want to either imagine that there's one diet that's going to work for everyone, and you don't want to imagine that there's one diet that's going to work for you the rest of your life because it's going to change over time. Yeah, I mean, a few years ago, I was a personal trainer, and I was standing up all day and exercising, and then now I'm in my home on my couch all day. So it's a different diet than I would need. <laughs> yeah, unless you're at your standing desk, at your standing treadmill desk. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, do you want to do our reader question? Do you have anything else you want to cover before we go into our reader questions, Caitlin? Well, I was wondering, uh, a lot of people advocate balancing, like there's this idea that that doing, that, I mean, I've heard you talk about it before, it's, it's like the, the balancing the neurotransmitters by yourself is kind of complicated and it's hard to know, you know, and then if you do too much 5-HTP or then it's going to take away from the tyrosine and it's going to get out of balance. And, you know, some people recommend just doing passion flower or herbs like that. What is, what is your idea about that? Yeah, I, I think it's too complicated to try to do on your own. So if you do the lifestyle changes and that's not enough, you just find somebody even if you don't do the lab work, someone who's familiar with the supplements that's used them for years that could keep you from making most of the common mistakes. I haven't seen the self-treating thing go very well too often. <laughs> well, it, it's right, like you were saying, is if you take, if you've heard 5-HTP works and you take that for a while, then there are side effects, right? It decreases your dopamine. It's complicated enough that you're probably not going to figure it out by reading a couple of books or by practicing. I guess you could practice on your neighbors maybe first and see how messed up they get. And then but you want to practice on yourself, right? Um, like if you have a neighbor that you don't like for some reason, you could practice on them. <laughs> well, then, yeah, then maybe they start off being much nicer to you. And then if they go back to their old self, you'll know. Yeah, no, you don't. I mean, the thing is that you want to, pra- you want to work with someone who's already, which is why they call it practice. I've been in practice for 20 years. It's practice, right? We're not doing, we're practicing. Doctors don't do, they practice. You want to work with someone who's already practiced on a bunch of people before you, so you're not <laughs> they're practicing on. And you want to get a doctor when they're in a good stage of life, like five plus, I think over five years of practice is good because you make most of your mistakes in the first five years. But you don't want someone who's too old and burned out. I'm getting a little grumpy. I don't know if you want to see me or not. Uh, but, you know, you don't <laughs> in a phase of life when they're at least five years in practice, but they're not totally grumpy and burned out yet. So they care about you and they're knowledgeable. And, you know, you'll get – that's, I think, like the sweet spot for patients to look for, okay? Well, the other thing to work on always is your digestion because one of the reasons you may not be work, your brain might not be working is – even though you're pouring in all this good protein, is it's not getting broken down, right? Yes. And so that's in the Kalish method, those are the three big categories, right? We talk about adrenal stress hormone stuff, digestion, and detox. And all those are necessary to help protect the brain. You want the adrenals in good shape. You don't want too much stress. Cortisol goes right into the hippocampus portion of the brain and kills brain cells. So you want to mitigate the stress. You want to get the digestion working, and you want to detox, those three things. Yeah, that was one of our rear questions is the gut-brain connection, and that pretty much knocked that one out. But, yeah, if you have too much inflammation, you're not able to absorb 
um, whatever you're eating. But speaking of reader questions, I will start with this one. She says, how long do I need to eat a clean paleo diet before I can expect my hormones to balance out better if I've suffered from depression? Or maybe she means brain chemistry or neurotransmitters too. I don't want to take medication for something that could be completely diet related. And the doctors I've seen just want to put me on meds. So she's yeah. basically asking how long does it take? I would try. I mean, I usually recommend people try the diet stuff for three or four months really strictly. If that's not enough to make a huge change, then you see a naturally oriented person. And if that's not enough to make a huge change, then you escalate up and you see a conventional doctor because you know that you have a bigger problem. So the next one is, please ask Dr. Kalish. I am on antidepressants and I would like to wean off the drugs. Is this something that I can do with his protocols and amino acids, or how do I go about getting off my antidepressants? Yeah, so that's extra complicated. Right? So you need to, and this is a lot of my job, a lot of my day is taken up with patients in this situation. So, and it requires teamwork, right? So you have to find a psychiatrist or conventional medical doctor that's willing to play ball and help to do the taper so they can prescribe the appropriate decreasing dosages to get you off. And every drug is different, right? Some drugs take. Some drugs take weeks to get off. Some can take several months. So you have to have someone who knows how to do that. And then you need someone like me who can do the amino acid program so that we're boosting up your brain as the medical docs are bringing the drugs down, right? And you coordinate that well. Every case I've ever had has been very successful. It just takes time, you know, six months or a year, and takes a team, time and a team. And then you can do it safely. And not only that, but you can repair the damage that the medications have caused while you're doing this and make it so that you obviously eliminate all the side effects of the drug because you're off the drug and you end up in a, in a pretty positive place at the end of the process. So you can do both simultaneously. You kind of work on weaning off the drugs while you're employing the other supplements on the protocol? Yeah, and usually you need two doctors to do that because there's very few doctors that can do it all. Like I'm a chiropractor, so I can't do the prescription part. And most of the guys that are good friends of mine are medical do the supplement part. So you just need a team, you need two doctors to help you, and you know, boom, you're done. Six months or a year, you can figure it out. Tell us how the adrenal protocol, I know I put my mom on an adrenal protocol, and it seemed to help immensely with her depression. <laughs> Yeah, so one of the, if not the leading cause of depression is HPA axis dysfunction, which is hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis dysfunction. So another a fancy way of saying this, that's a fancy way of saying when we're stressed, we get depressed. <laughs> yeah. If you're a YouTube kind of googly YouTube type of person, then you can Google or YouTube Dr. Robert Sapolsky. S-A-P-C-S-A-P-O-L-F-K-Y. So he looks like a homeless guy, but really he's one of the top neuroscientists in the world. And if you Google Sapolsky, Robert Sapolsky, Stanford lecture on depression, boom, for free will pop up an hour-long lecture by one of the top neuroscientists in the world about how stress creates depression. It's a really great talk, and he does... He's he's a great uh, and amazing doctor. He's a medical doctor. He's based out of Stanford University, and he's been doing research on stress and how stress affects the brain for 35 years. He's quite brilliant. 
Um, he does look like a homeless guy that should be driving a VW, but don't let that fool you. He's really got a, as powerful a brain as anyone out there right now. That, that's the Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers author. Yeah. I wrote a book called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And I, I heard him speak last year at a at an hour-long lecture. He's one of the funniest people I've ever met. It was like going to a stand-up comic show. He was so funny. He's not <laughs> lecture. But if you ever get a chance to see him in person, it's totally worth it. Just buy, bring a friend and get two tickets, and he's just an amazing scientist. Huh, cool. So the next question is, I would like to know how accurate the urine and or saliva neurotransmitter testing is. Um, there's about a half a dozen lab companies in the United States that do urine testing for neurotransmitters. There's only one or two that do it properly, so the majority of testing that's done is not very accurate. The same is true for salivary adrenal profiles. There's a dozen or two lab companies that are doing salivary cortisol testing. There's only probably four or five that are accurate. Most of the testing that's being done for brain chemistry and for adrenals is not that accurate, which is a problem. So you, you happen to know of the most... Accurate. I, my, my, most of my time is spent teaching doctors what lab companies to order and how to interpret all this stuff in my training program. So um, if, you, if you have a doctor that's you know, willing to play ball with you, you can get them to take my class, basically. Uh, or you can just work with me directly or find someone that I trained. Because you've got to know what are the good companies or you can be in trouble. Yeah, there's a lot of variability on accuracy and lab testing out there, for sure. Uh, so speaking of, um, tell people a little bit about your book and how it can help. You know, we were just talking about how much of this you can do on your own. What sort of um, program or protocol does your book provide for people for them to get started? I mean, the book is really designed for people who are ready to work with the doctor. So it's not a self-help book at all. Um, you know, for self-help, I think you, you all should do, you know, the diet stuff like you guys recommend on your website and all the paleo kinds of things. So the book is really designed for people who want to start to work with a doctor and are trying to figure out how it's all going to go down and what the details are. Um, and for self-help stuff, I think you should do the lifestyle changes. I mean, I think uh, – I didn't want to write a, a lifestyle change book because there's so many good ones out there already. But. And where can people find, you know, practitioners that are certified in the, you know, the Kalish method? How would people go about finding? So you can go to Dr. Kalish.com, Dr. Kalish.com, D R K A L I S H.com, and just email my office. Let us know where you are, and we'll see if we can find someone that's near to you. Yeah, Dr. Kalish has a great practitioner training program too for anyone out there who really wants to learn how to employ these techniques in their own practice uh, so you're not only helping patients but also practitioners to help more people because that's kind of the name of the game isn't it yeah we've got i think about 600 people that have been through my training program now 600 practitioners nutritionists chiropractors acupuncturists medical doctors personal trainers trained a lot of people and it's just growing exponentially each year now it's wonderful yeah that's awesome uh, so those are all my reader questions. Caitlin, do you have any? No, I mean, I think you went over most of mine. All right, awesome. So that's where you can find Dr. Kalish, uh, drkalish.com, and the book is The Kalish Method. 
And we want to thank you for coming on our uh, podcast again. The first one, like I said, is one of our most popular. And there's been a lot of interest in people that want to learn about this stuff. So thanks a lot, Dr. Kalish. We really appreciate your time here. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.